Hello and welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Every week, Kim and I get together and talk wine with you and things we find on the internet that we think are educational or trending, and we come in to discuss them with you. And first, we like to tell you what we Googled ourselves this week. So, Kim, what did you Google this week? Sangria recipes. I like that. Sangria season. It's, you know, it's barbecue season. There are parties to go to. And I have two basic sangria recipes that I I always have as my go-to. So I have a red and a white, but I didn't have necessarily all the correct ingredients that I usually like to use for my sangria. So I was making up a new one. So I was, uh, I was Googling some ideas for what can I use if I have this fruit juice and I have this liqueur? Can I put it all together and will it taste good? So it all worked out. I love sangria. You can always tell when there's something trending on the internet because people come in looking for the same ingredients. Oh, yeah. Or the same style of wine. And Have you been seeing that lately? Yeah, lately it's been Pinot Grigio for sangria with like apple liqueur or apple vodka. So you can can see that. Apple sangria is a big thing right now. I actually noticed that I noticed that too. I don't I don't think I've ever done an apple sangria. I throw apples in my sangria. White's been trending a lot more, I think, this year. White sangria? Yeah, white yeah. sangria. So I do white a white fruits. I do a peach lemonade sangria, which is really, really yummy. Sounds good. And what did you Google this week, Mark? Well, this week I wanted to look up rosés, but not just rosés, celebrities that make rosés. Because I've been seeing a lot around that this person's getting into it, that person. So I wanted to tell you, Kim, a few celebrity rosés that are out there. Mm. Drew Barrymore makes Carmel Road rosé. John Legend makes one called LVE. Brad Pitt and Angelita Jolie, we know, bought a French... Sure, and that's been around for a while. Vineyard. I don't remember what happened when they divorced, if they split it or kept know. it for profit. And then also, Bon Jovi has one called Diving into Hampton Water Rosé. So I assume it's New York, Long Island. Bon Jovi? Rosé. John Bon Jovi has a wine label. Bon Jovi, huh? yeah. So All those right. are the biggies that I found in the rosé market. Well, I'm going to have to get a bottle of that for my sister-in-law. So our first topic, keeping with the rosé theme, Kim, is something that was in Vogue.com. One of those, again, numbers, nine surprising facts about rosé. And first, Kim, I, I want to ask you, what have you been drinking for rosés? Ooh, that's a great question. What have I been drinking? Italian. So I had a lovely rosé of Alianico just the other night from Campania, which is a wine region that not a lot of people know about, but that I am a big fan of the wines from that region, both the reds and the whites. So I had one of those. I've been drinking some Northern Italian rosé as well. And I'm also a big fan of German rosé. So there's one in particular that's a rosé of Pinot Noir that I am a big, big fan of. Um, that's It's light and it's, it's refreshing and it has almost a little bit of sweetness to it, which I'm okay with. And it's just, it's great for warm weather and it's fantastic with food. So those are kind of my go-tos at the moment. Nice, what about you? nice. Are you this drinking year, any rosé yet? Yeah, this year I'm big on Spanish. I've been drinking a lot of Bierzo Mencia. Mm. Oh, I like Mencia. And it's just a phenomenal red grape, but when made into rosé, I think it is just 
excellent. And, and not only that, I've been drinking past vintages of it. So that's one of the things we'll talk about the nine surprising facts, but it's not the freshest version just out the 2018. I'm drinking the 17 version, which is just phenomenal. So let's talk about, Kim, the nine surprising facts. And first off, they start saying there's many shades of rosé. And you mentioned you're drinking Italian. Those are pretty darker color rosés. And this is one of the things when we were doing French education that the French government actually has a shade scale. Oh yeah, you love this. Right? It looks like a Sherman Williams chart (laughs) of rosé. And and if you're saying you're making a rosé in this region, it has to match this shade or this color. So mm-hmm. they come from clear pink to total, maybe almost reddish in color. Right. And it, it doesn't always tell you if the wine is going to be drier or sweeter. You know, sometimes it does tell you a bit about the concentration of flavor in the wine. You know, generally, if you have a darker hued rosé, you're going to have more powerful flavors in there. But that's not always the case. And it depends a lot on the grape variety used because rosé can be made really from any red grape out there, you can make a rosé wine from that red grape and how much time the skin and the juice sit together. So a lot of it is just naturally whatever the personality and the characteristics of that grape variety are. But then the winemaker's decisions really come into play there too. So the decisions that the winemaker makes for how much time that juice and those skins sit together, that really does have an impact on the final wine. Yeah, so many different shades due to the different grape varietals, to the different skin contact. I'm glad you mentioned that the dark does not mean sweet. When we're mm-hmm. talking rosés, we're talking dry wines. Generally. Generally yep. dry. I, I, people, that's the first thing I'll ask. Someone says, look for a rosé, and I'll ask, you want dry or sweet? And most of the time, it's they're looking for the dry yep. version. And that's been a, a slow growth over the last, I would say, decade as people, Americans especially, embrace the idea of pink wine as a dry wine. It's an alternative to whites for summertime drinking for a lot of people. I personally drink them all year long, but for a lot of people, it's still a very seasonal beverage. And it doesn't have to be. You don't need to feel that you can only drink rosé in the summertime. It's kind of like, okay, people feel like you can only drink bubbly wine at celebrations. It's like, go drink what you like. You know, not I'm not saying go crazy, but if you have a particular style of wine that you enjoy drinking and you feel like, oh, you know, oh, I like this, but I can only drink it at a certain time of year or whatever. Break that rule. <laughs> you know, that's one of those things that I'm like, drink what you like. Life's too short to only drink champagne on New Year's Eve. Free. And that was yeah. one of the nine things they mentioned, Kim, that you, I know. You brought up wine for all seasons and for me rosé i love at thanksgiving i do too right thanksgiving yes. turkey rosé cold turkey sandwiches and rosé <laughs> so you're not thinking summer and it's been trending like that where it has been a year-round people are looking for and, yep. I, and i love that because before it was just hot weather here rosé other than that you don't stock it and it's so great with food like there's so much out there that you could just drink it with anything there's it's so nice that it's it's kind of a gap between reds and whites and goes well with traditionally white pairing foods and also goes well with traditionally red pairing foods. Like I love rosé with tuna and salmon and pork chops and grilled chicken and a lot of things that you would traditionally say, oh, well, that needs a red wine. No, it doesn't. Have you had a Drink pizza? We always talk about pizza, pizza and rosé. Pizza, rosé. I've never had it, but I'm thinking right um, now, that's what I feel like. I probably <laughs> have because I fear, I feel like we eat both a fair amount of pizza at home and drink a fair amount of rosé. So at some point, we probably did. Yeah, I think the acidity with with tomato sauce is Mm -hmm. fine. Mm -hmm. So before we 
get off on a food tangent. <laughs> um, the next surprising fact about Rosé, they said, look past Provence. Now, Provence, France, the home of Rosé. And I think we've already shown and telling you what we've been drinking says we're gaining away from the French. And I'm seeing that more and more. There's more Italian, more Austrian, everything else. People are moving away from the French a little bit, but it is the home of Rosé. So do you think people should look past? I do. And I think especially for American wine drinkers who like bolder flavors and like more fruit forward, especially red wines. Sometimes those Provençal rosés can be a little too light. I like them on a hot day when when they're very, very cold. But I think that for wine drinkers who either grew up on Oaky Chardonnay or they're used to drinking Merlots and Cabernets, something that is a little richer and has a little bit more body is a, a bit more of an appealing wine. So like I talk to people about there's rosé made from Malbec out there that is deeply pink, um, almost a fuchsia color that has a lot, you know, packs a big punch. And the, I think those are, are fun and they're delicious and they're full of fruit. Those Pinot Noir rosés like I was talking about, all of these things from Italy and your Spanish rosés, you know, there's a lot of real hearty reds that come from Spain and you see that reflected in their rosés as well. I was thinking of this as an educational moment for, for wine drinkers. I think if you like rosés and you've never explored Provence rosés, you should explore mm. them to see like this, this is the biggie. You know, this is the original. This is what people love in France. So to say, look past it, yeah, because there's so much out there, but don't look past it if you're looking at the point of learning, tasting wine or education, because Provence rosés are phenomenal. Right. This re- and it really is the homeland of rosé. Winemakers have been making wine in this part of France for literally before the Romans. Like <laughs> this was, there's like 2,500 years of history in Provence as far as their rosé winemaking goes. So a lot of history, a a lot of experience, you know, and something that is very, very traditional, not only in this part of France, but in other parts of France as well. So we sort of, as here in America, are looking at it as it's this trend, but it's never been a trend in France. It's always just been a normal thing. So this is a staple style of wine that is consumed, not just in the southern part of the country where a lot of it is grown, but in other parts as well. So there's a lot of it that is moved up to Paris, find it on restaurant menus in in Paris all over the place, especially in springtime and summertime. So this is not necessarily a flash in the pan kind of style of wine. This is something that has been around for a really long time and, and I think is here to stay. You've been listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Kim and Mark. You can find past episodes on iTunes and find out more about Mark at franklinlickers.com. You can find out more about myself at vinitaswineworks.com. So often when we talk about Uh, wine labels with people. We also like to talk about the shape of the bottle. And there have been uh, classic bottle shapes that you associate with certain styles of wine. So like Bordeaux is always bottled in the same shape of a bottle. Generally, Chardonnay is almost always bottled in the same shape of bottle. Um, And it's interesting because in this article, they said that one particular rosé producer tried to create a similar system for rosé by putting it in a bottle that is shaped like like a candle pin bowling pin, like like not, not a candle pin bowling pin but like a regular bowling yeah, pin bowling you know, like pin. the fat That's can- fat at the bottle is that yeah um and but it didn't really oh, no, catch candle on pin is candle slim. pin is the really skinny yeah. one i don't know yeah what, yeah the big ball the big yes right regular old <laughs> bowling right. pin yeah. so I, I thought it was interesting that they tried to sort of make this style be their own thing but i don't really think it caught on so you see rosé bottled in 
all sorts of shapes. And it's some of them are very artistic. And and I think that that's always something sort of neat to look at about a bottle of rosé. Yeah, it was the, I mean, the article's nine surprising facts about rosé. Bottle shape, I don't know. I don't know. Kind of, I thought, I it's thought not that surprising. That was... I guess it's trending that because of this bowling pin shape thing in the, in the 30s in France, people are experimenting. And I've seen that a lot this year where a producer in California re- released one designed after a perfume bottle. Mm-hmm. And I've seen it where... It has hand-blown rose glass yes, on the I've top. Yes, I've seen the, the roses, yeah. And people are putting the gla- the roses in the glass on the bottom and making the bottom the pont uh, yeah. of rose. So, I mean, it doesn't have anything to do with the quality, but they're trying to, because the market, I think, is getting so saturated, this is just another thing of to get you to, yeah, to the brand. Yeah, they have to differentiate right? Different themselves, shape. sure. My, so my fact that I would maybe replace bottle, sh- bottle shape with is that you will almost always find rosé bottled in clear glass, which is quite unusual usual for wines because usually you'll find them in either green glass or brown glass to help protect the wine from the harmful effects of light. But rosé is almost always in clear glass because they want you to see that color. You know, the color is such a selling factor for rosé that almost everything will be clear so that then you can see what that beautiful shade of pink is. Great point. And I love this time of year when my shelves are filled with rosé and I have this just perfect color tones going up and down the aisle. And I'm shocked. I don't know if you are, but they didn't mention cans. They didn't mention no. any like juice box rosé, just <laughs> just bottle. So I guess I would be more surprised that people of popular, you know, cans or something, but bottle shape is something I didn't really <laughs> think about. Uh, next on the, the list of surprising facts about rosé is some improve with age. And I think this is a great point about rosé because when I started telling you what I'm drinking, I'm drinking a 2017, mm-hmm. which in the rosé world is a year old. Yeah. And because of its acidity, it drinks great. And people, I think, are afraid. And as a consumer or us as wine buyers, we can get some great deals on past vintages because the new stuff comes in. They still have this last year's. You can get it for a bargain and it tastes great. Yep. I've I've been drinking some 17s and I've got some 17s on restaurant lists that are, yeah, still drinking really, really wonderfully. So, you not know. Not all. No, no not all. Don't get me wrong not because all. there's certain grapes that they have to be fresh. But other that are heavier grapes, they will last. But again, this kind of goes back to that color thing. If you have a bottle of rosé and yes, it might be a vintage year or two older, but if the color still looks bright and pink and doesn't look brown and doesn't look too orange, then chances are you still have a nice fresh bottle there. So go ahead and buy it and drink it. The next fact, Kim, I thought this was funny. Rosé is the OG of wine. (laughs) And you mentioned a little bit about it. It it was always been popular in, in France. But now it's just coming on more uh, here in, in the U.S., for trending. Right. I think the next one is about grape varieties. And yes, rosé is made from red grapes. And I did touch on this before. Uh, but there are also a few grape varieties that have sort of grayish, pinkish skin that can produce rosé that you wouldn't ordinarily think about because they're traditionally used for making white wine. So um, a great example of this is actually Pinot Grigio. So Grigio is the Italian word for gray because Pinot Grigio itself has sort of this grayish, pinkish colored skin. And if you make that wine with skin contact, you end up with kind of a slightly pinkish wine. So there was there was a trend about, I don't know, 15 years ago, maybe, where people were making pink Pinot Grigio, and it was just very, very lightly pink, but that would still qualify as a rosé. So, you know, sometimes you might see these grape varieties on a label that you wouldn't ordinarily think would produce a rosé wine because they're white wines or white grapes. So that skin contact makes all the difference. 
Yeah, it's good you mentioned Pinot Grigio. It also makes orange wine. Yep. It's, so it's, it's such an interesting grape. It, don't you think it's funny too, Kim, if you see a blush colored, say, Merlot or Cab, instead of calling it Rosé, they call it White Merlot. Or right, White, white Merlot or White Cab. And that's actually, I think, a good little rule of thumb for consumers is if you see a bottle with that labeling, what it's called White Merlot or the classic is White Zinfandel, chances are you're going to be getting a wine with some sweetness to it. So it's a little different than the style that we're talking about, these more traditional styles of rosé, which are dry or at the at the very least off dry. But if you're looking for something that is sweeter, that does have some noticeable sweetness to it, like a white Zinfandel, look for those other ones that do call themselves white whatever. Um, and those will be along that blush style as opposed to a true rosé. The last, I believe, Kim, the surprising fact about rosé, they say it's trending. And, and to us and to our lists, we talked about this telling you it is no surprise to us. Mm-hmm. We've been saying this for a while. It's been trending. Uh, it's not seasonal, which we talked about. And then an interesting thing they mentioned that did surprise me was saying France, in France, rosé outsells white. I think that's pretty a pretty amazing fact. It, I, I, I don't know. I'd like to see some numbers <laughs> on it because... Give us the hard data. A lot, yeah, that's pretty surprising. Yeah. So in this whole article, I guess, yeah, I was surprised. And yeah. it's, it was an interesting article, but we once again, we've been talking about rosés and we always drink them. And if you have any feedback on we'd love to hear it. All right, and go out and grab yourself a nice bottle and don't be afraid to try something new. And if you like rosé, we definitely encourage you to experiment with different regions, different grape varieties, different styles. They're fun. They're not usually ridiculously expensive. Expensive, and they're they're just a really lovely way to enjoy a glass of wine. You're listening to the wonderful world of wine, and we are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. If you'd like to get more information about Kim, please find her at her website, vinitaswineworks.com. If you'd like more information about myself, please go to franklinliquors.com. And if you have any questions or comments, please find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. So, Mark, I've been waiting to get to this article because I've been really wanting to talk about this. So this is a piece that has been creating some controversy in the wine world. There were some comments made by a master of wine, Tim Haney, about how food and wine pairings are total crap. <laughs> and he goes he on said to the say, word. he did. I didn't want to say <laughs> that on air. Uh, but he, he made a big deal about um, when sommeliers and wine professionals talk about perfect food and wine pairings or excellent food and wine pairings. And we talk about history and how certain things that grow together go together. He's saying that's all bull and that it you just are supposed to let the consumer drink what they drink, what they like to drink. Don't make them feel bad about wanting to drink whatever you think think is a bad combination and just let people kind of do their own thing. So I I get I get it. I understand what he's saying, but <laughs> I don't he know. Sure stirred up was, a lot. He of really did. He really stirred the pot. It kind of reminded here. me of sports radio. You know, he he went against everybody else just to get people to call yeah. in, and he got a lot of feedback. Are, are you familiar with this gentleman's background, Kim? He's a master of wine. He, yeah, a little bit. He, you, you know about his health? What, yes, his big thing. So yeah. for our listeners, he became an alcoholic from drinking so much wine, and he actually stopped drinking. I, I yeah. think he still he ta- doesn't drink. He tastes. He will taste but he won't professionally, consume. but he. He will not 
just drink wine. Which yeah. is a huge thing to be a master of wine. I mean, and not be able to taste. But that I'm just impressed by that. He came yeah. out with his whole story behind that. And he had no feedback like he did with this article, just saying the wine pairing is bull. But you had mentioned in the past, Kim, people like to drink what they like to drink. So right. when they're pairing it with food, and I've seen, I probably talked about this a million times, when the traditional pairings, when you say, talk about Thanksgiving and Turkey and people say Pinot Noir or Riesling, I've seen people that are drinking Cabernet, they want to drink Cabernet with their turkey, right? So this is pretty much saying what this gentleman is saying. Whatever you think works, works. Don't have some sommelier tell you you have to drink this because that's the traditional thing to drink, right? right? And it is sort of really all about, not only about choices and you drinking and and eating what you like, but also that I have a different body than you have. So therefore, there's really no way that you can equate your experience with what you're tasting with my experience and what I'm tasting because your physiology is different, your palate is different, your taste buds are different, your nose is different, your experiences are different from mine. So therefore, you are going to experience how those things go together in a different way than I am. So who am I to say that that doesn't taste good because it might taste great to you, but just not taste so good to me. And I think that that was part of at the heart of what he was saying as well, is that you experience things in a different way than I do. So maybe those things taste really good to you, but aren't going to taste really good to me. And in in other articles and in other things that he has put out there, he goes into this a little bit deeper where he'll talk about, okay, this person is this kind of a taster and, and they're more sensitive to this component in a wine versus this other component component in a food. And so it really is that maybe we're just not all speaking the same language here, which I think is very interesting. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Your taste in wine, my taste in wine is is different. Our palates are different. So it makes sense with food and wine pairing. Further in the article, I thought it was interesting. He was in New Zealand talking at a conference. So he threw out, if you want to have Sauvignon Blanc with your steak, that's fine. So then I'm thinking, okay, he's doing this because Because he's he's in New Zealand. He's in New Zealand. (laughs) He can't talk steak pairing without bringing up Sauvignon Blanc, but he, he made a great point. But then he, he kind of ended it, Kim, saying a perfect example of food and wine pairing is China, and we should talk about that. And you had mentioned in a past episode how the Chinese food and wine pairing is totally different. Was that what he was saying is look at look at how the Chinese look at it? I don't know if that's what he was saying or if he was saying like, okay, we suddenly have this new market that is expanding in front of our eyes that is very focused on big, powerful red wines that in a traditional view of food and wine pairings do not go with the cuisines of those areas. I mean, think about anything, so fr- yeah, think about sense, anything from think Sichuan province now. that is loaded with spicy peppers and, you know, you're just on fire. Traditional food and wine pairing advice is do not put a big oaky cabernet with that dish because they are like polar opposites and they're just not going to go. But it's what is the trendy style of wine to be drinking. You want to be seen as somebody who not only knows what they're talking about, but that is trying to make a good impression with the wines that you are offering. You are putting a Bordeaux on the table. You're putting a Napa Cab on the table. You're putting a big, powerful red out there. So I think that's what he's saying. It's more like, okay, look at this market that what this is what they love. Who are you to go in and say, oh, don't drink that. That doesn't go great with your food. Drink this instead. That's not the way to change people minds like that is the opposite of hospitality and really that's at the core of what he's trying to get across is hospitality is about working with the guest 
to make sure that they have the best possible enjoyment out of their meal. And you're not going to make them feel good by telling them that their choices are wrong. So let let them drink what they want to drink. And that's sort of where the education piece comes in there. It's like, yes, you can provide information that but you need to do it in a way that isn't going to make people feel bad about their choices. Yeah, but that's when you look at that was a great example he used. If you if you want to push traditional pairings, but you want to market to the billions of Chinese who are getting into the wine market, you have to say that it's not right, right? You have to say you have to get away from the traditional stuff because it's not a traditional culture. So I I think he had a great example using that Mm -hmm. to compare his point. But I also like that he came up with an article that generates talk about the wine industry. Yeah, this really created a lot of chatter in wine circles. It got people talking. So I think that that's great. I mean, we're talking about it because it's (laughs) trending, right? So, I mean, he's a very interesting guy. He does a lot of education, I think, for the the Napa Valley Academy. Is that what it's called? Napa Valley School in Napa. That's a wine school. He does a lot of business classes. Very nice. I think his wife is somehow in the wine, master wine or something too, but very interesting story. Thank you for being with us today on The Wonderful World of Wine. You can always find past episodes on iTunes by searching The Wonderful World of Wine or find us on Facebook at the same name. Thank you, and we'll talk to you again next week. Bye, bye, bye.